Welcome, Collective, to the Cult of Domesticity's Halloween episode. I'm your host, Courtney, and this Halloween we are joined by some friends, old and new, to form a malefic coven for your amusement and haunting. Come and join us at the fire with your spirit of choice for some haunting histories and spooky tales. And now, let us open this dark book. My name is Lindsay, and I was one of the co-hosts of 33% Pulp, a podcast where we took pulp novels, divided them into thirds, and recapped them one third at a time. I am back for this extra special episode of The Cult of Domesticity. And in the same vein, to follow sort of our format, I mean, it's just me right now, so I can't divide it into thirds and then be told the story, unfortunately, but I can read to you a short story that I have found from Weird Tales, Volume 1, Number 3, published in 1923, called Case Number 27, A Few Minutes in a Madhouse, written by Molly Frank Ellis. I can tell you that I have not read this in full, so we're all gonna just discover this together. So, here's the story. Dr. Maynard paused midway of the long hospital corridor and waved an inclusive hand toward its twin rows of iron-barred cells. This, Wayne, he says, is the psychopathic ward. We have some unusual cases here. Take, for instance, number 27. I'm sure you'll be interested in number 27. Step this way. I obeyed with reluctance. I was concerned with Maynard, not his psychopathic cases. We had not seen each other since our college days 20 years before, and I had hoped for a return to our old intimacy during these few hours together, which chance had thrown in my way. I had knocked about the world, acquiring kaleidoscopic knowledge of life accorded to globetrotters. Maynard had stayed at home, tinkering with the mental workings of the human machinery until his name stood for the accomplishment of amazing things in the realm of psychopathy. Each had run true to form. Maynard's passion was to make the wheels go round, mine to wonder why they went. This is number 27, Maynard continued as he stopped before a cell door. I'll let her tell her own story. Good morning, Mrs. Howard. How are you this morning? At his words, a woman slowly rose from a bench across the far wall of the cell. Then, abruptly, she made a sudden rush that ended in a frantic shaking of the iron bars of the cell door where we stood. Dr. Maynard, you're going to let me out, aren't you? You're going to let me go home and rub Jim's head so he can sleep? Jim can't sleep unless I rub his head for him. You know he can't, doctor. I've told you so often. Yes, yes, you've told me often, Mrs. Howard. Maynard gave me a significant glance. But tell me again, please. Maybe I'll understand better this time and let you go. The woman strained her gaunt body against the cell door. She seemed in a torture of anxiety, obsessed by a vital current of emotion in sharp contrast to the pitiful meagerness of her personality. She wore a cheap cotton dress, her hair was plain about her sharp face, and there was written upon her countenance that look of repression, of negation of all right to exist as an individual, which marks the poorer type of rural woman. It seemed for a moment as if she would break into a torrent of words. Then, abruptly, she fell back 
silent, and the heartbreak in her eyes were succeeded by a slow, growing horror. Yet her tragedy, whatever it might be, brought with it a certain dignity, which she had hitherto lacked. Her attenuated homeliness forbade distinction, yet when she made pitiful apology to Maynard, a certain nobility of soul shone from her eyes. I forgot a minute, Dr. Maynard, that I killed Jim. I'd forgot that I hated him. I was thinking he was alive and that I loved him like I used to before the children was killed. I'm a wicked woman, the wickedest woman that ever lived, but I wouldn't be in this penitentiary if Jim could have slept without having to have his head rubbed. Maynard touched my foot at the word penitentiary. That's all right, Mrs. Howard. His voice seemed unnecessarily loud and cheerful against the thin anguish of her tones. Tell me about the children. How were they killed? They was run over, doctor. No words can describe the deadness of her voice, as if a fierce pain burnt for lack of fuel for further endurance. It was the poultry truck that goes by the farm every morning. Millie was too little to know not to get in the road, and Jackie ran out to grab her back, and he fell, Jackie did. "'Twasn't nobody's fault, doctor. The man that drives the truck, he always waved at the children as he passed, and he most went crazy when it happened. And Millie was too little to know better, and Jackie done the best he could, only six years old. But afterwards, me and Jim couldn't sleep. At first we did, a night or two, because we was all worn out with the funeral and such, but after after the kinfolks was gone, we couldn't. We could see their faces, Millie's and Jackie's. Then, after a while, Jim got so she didn't see him so bad, and he said he could have slept only for me. He said I ought to be a getting over it some, and I reckon I should have been. I tried to, but it didn't do no good. Maybe twas because they was just the two of them, and both going at once. Jim got right fretful at me. He said a man couldn't work on a farm and not sleep. He was right, too. Jim always was sensible. One night, after I had worried him considerable, crying, I found out that I could put him to sleep by rubbing his forehead slow and firm and so i done it right along every night after that and he slept fine i was glad because jim was a hard worker and a good provider and a man can't work on a farm and not sleep but somehow after jim had got to sleep at nights things seemed a heap lonesomer maybe if we lived nearer to the neighbors twould help some "'Twas so awful still nights, out where we live, and the moon come in at the winder so white and all. Times, just before dawn, I'd get a-wondering if it would have happened if I had been out in the front yard a-watching out for the children instead of washing back in the kitchen. And I'd get to shaking all over and couldn't stop. Once I waked Jim up and begged him to talk to me, but he said it wouldn't help none for two of us to be losing our sleep, so I never done it anymore. Jim was always sensible. At last I got so the work round the house dragged on me until I was afraid I couldn't get things done. I told Jim about it and he was sorry. But he said a woman's work didn't matter so much. It could be let go, but a man had to make the living. Even with all the work and all, I never wanted not to come. I get all scared when it come on dusk. Jim didn't like it. He said it wasn't no way to welcome a man home after a hard day's work, and it wasn't. I'd done my best, but somehow I couldn't laugh much or be loving, so Jim took to driving to town after supper was over. He had never done that before the children was killed. Sometimes he'd stay real late. Me not being used to being left alone made it worse, too. 
Sometimes I'd get so tired waiting up for him that I'd feel like I could go to sleep right then. But of course I couldn't, kind of having to rub his head. You see, he'd got to depend on it, and as he said, a man had to have his sleep or it couldn't work. All this time, doctor, I was loving Jim and trying to get along the best I could. I knowed I'd been lucky to get Jim. He was a good man. He never took tantrums like Pa. We'd never dared cry. Pa at home because he was excitable like and finally he went crazy. They would have took him to the asylum I reckon. Only he died. Maybe I had a got so's I could have slept after a while. Only about this time it came on to October when the fall winds begin to blow and the house would creak in nights. Kind of like little breaking noises like babies whispering and shadows of the leaves on our big tree outside the winder kept twisting about on the walls like little hands a-pushing against coffin lids trying to get out and go back and find their mammy's breasts. She stopped abruptly and stood in tense stillness as if she were back in that hushed house of sorrow with its sharp noises and its tiny mother-seeking shadow hands upon the walls listening to the silence, the unendurable silence of the waning hours. Dr. Maynard made a restless movement. With a start, the woman came back to realities and turned to us once more. I didn't get to hating Jim, doctor, until after I took to using them pills they gave Ma when she was on her deathbed. She died, leaving a bottle of them on the kitchen shelf. Morphine, they call them. One night, when I just couldn't stand it no longer, I thought of them, and I got one, and it helped a lot. She paused, apparently musing upon how much it had helped. Then she went on. "'Twas long about then that I got to hating Jim, looking at him sleeping so hard, his face all red and his mouth open. "'Twasn't that so much, though, doctor, cause I always thought Jim was nice-looking, even though he was coarse-complected. "'But he got to having restless spells, waking up along of cock-crowing time, about when I'd got my pill and had kind of quiz-shaking over the shadows and things.' Then I'd have to rouse up to him again and rub him to sleep once more. I got to wondering if he'd die right off without its hurting him none, if I'd press down hard on them soft spots in his temples. It seemed like having to do it anymore would be more than I could bear. She stopped again, as if reliving her torture, perhaps slipping once more like a white wraith from bedroom to kitchen shelf and back again to stand looking down upon her husband's sprawled figure battling against the upsurge of desire to crush the life beneath her hands and be forever free from her hideous task. I didn't kill Jim, though, doctor, until them pills give out. I reckon maybe I wouldn't never have done it if they hadn't give out. But after that, S sometime after that, I killed Jim. I pressed down, down. Maynard waited until he was sure she had finished, and then spoke in a commanding tone. Mrs. Howard! Startled, she stared at us, as if seeing us for the first time. She grasped the cell door and shook it with a frenzy of anxiety. Dr. Maynard, you're going to let me out, ain't you? You're going to let me go home and rub Jim's head so he can sleep. Jim can't sleep unless I rub his head. I've told you so often, doctor. Maynard drew me away, but that pleading voice followed us down the length of the corridor. Thin, anguished, I hurried. When we had closed the door of the psychopathic ward behind us, Maynard said, "'Now that's the interesting part of it, that last to a, to a psychologist. 
Did you know that she still loves him whenever she comes out from under her obsession about killing him? She didn't kill him? I asked. Not at all. You see, when she could get no more of her drug, her grief and her loss of sleep turned her brain, as you layman would say. Remember what she said about Pa? I battled with my bewilderment at this unexpected turn of the affair. But I don't understand, I, I stammered. Probably not. I shall try to explain it as simply as possible and without using scientific terms. You see, she had gone over the manner of it so often in her silent vigils that when at last her conscious mind became unbalanced, the resisted desire took its revenge by becoming a subconscious obsession, which announced itself as an accomplished fact. It is an interesting sidelight on psychopathy, don't you think? I did not. I changed the subject. What became of the man or husband? How did he take it? Well, very well indeed. Level-headed fellow. Of course, he was upset at first over her condition, but when we made it clear to him that she was incurable, he calmed down. He went home and slept on it for a night or two. How do you suppose... I broke in. I, I really couldn't resist asking it. How do you suppose he got to sleep without... And then he applied for a divorce, continued Maynard, ignoring my childish rudeness. He wants to marry again, of course, but our laws... Marry? Maynard frowned. One can see his point of view. Yes, to be sure, and our laws are quite unsympathetic. Maynard dismissed the matter with a magnanimous gesture. Also, his eye bespoke a concentration of interest which ignored the trivial. He peered at me eagerly. What would you think, Wayne? I'm studying the case and I ask for information. Would you be led to believe that her reason for wanting to kill him was a subconscious sensing of that trait in him, that eagerness to be rid of whatever irked him regardless of his responsibilities? Or, on the other hand, would you think it a flare of sex antagonism, resentment that he, unlike herself, could resume a normal existence so soon after an emotional cataclysm? I fumbled my hat and turned toward the door. I wanted to get away. My time is up, Maynard, I, I said hastily. Sorry, but I must go. Glad to have had this visit with you. Awfully proud to have been the classmate of a celebrity, you know, and all that. But I really cannot follow your scientific subtleties. If you mean, do I think his cruelty drove her mad? Maynard threw up his hands. Oh, you layman, he laughed. But come in again, Wayne, anytime you're passing through town. Glad to see you as always. We have some very interesting cases here. The end. Well, wow, that was... <sighs> okay, so again, this was um, published in 1923 in a magazine called Weird Tales, v uh, volume one, number three, published in 1923. Um, I chose this because it sounded interesting, and I also liked it because it had a female author. Um, wow, there is a ton of gender stuff here to unpack. And class? Okay, also, I'm not like a voice actor, like at all. So, uh, all of that, I mean, not all of it. Okay, I did try. But a lot of it was how the text was written. I'm just, I'm just reading. <laughs> so, wow, that was creepy and scary and super sad. So, happy Halloween and I'm sorry. Thank you, Lindsay, for that spooky tale. The question really is, did you remember to take your medicine? Because we could all be mad now. We're joined now with another friend who don't believe has been on the podcast as of yet. So let's welcome Carrie from Sip and Shine Podcast to give us a haunted history, making us wonder, is our past spookier 
than anything we could come up with. Hi, this is Carrie, and I'm the host of Sip and Shine Podcast. I have with me today two of my reoccurring guest co-hosts, Jody and Jess. Sip and Shine Podcast is a retro-inspired cocktail podcast party of intriguing stories of history, scandals, pop culture, and hot mess stories. So come sip by us. And this is the haunting of the Cuts Madison house. In 1768, Dolly Payne was born to Quaker parents in North Carolina. She was the eldest daughter of a plantation owner, John Payne Jr., and his wife, Mary Coles Payne. Dolly moved with her family to Virginia and then Philadelphia. There, she met her future husband, a lawyer, John Todd. The couple had two sons together. Sadly, a yellow fever epidemic of 1793 struck and her husband and her youngest child would perish. In May 1794, Aaron Burr, an admirer who was a boarder at her mother's boarding house, introduced the 26-year-old widow to James Madison, a 43-year-old bachelor. James Madison was a Virginia representative in Congress. By September, the couple married. In 1787, James and Dolly Madison retired to his family plantation in Virginia after he left politics. In 1800, President Thomas Jefferson asked Madison to become the Secretary of State under his administration. The couple, along with her son Payne and Dolly's sister, moved to the new federal capital to live. Dolly took on the duties of hostess upon arrival, not only as the wife of a cabinet member, but also she assisted the president. President Jefferson's wife had passed in 1782, so Dolly Madison at times was called upon to act as hostess at formal banquets and other social gatherings. She also oversaw the furnishing of the presidential mansion. James Madison was elected to two terms after Thomas Jefferson. Company! Forward! Right! His tenure saw the War of 1812 and the burning of Washington. It is a part of legend that as the British advanced, the First Lady refused to leave the White House until Gilbert Stuart's portrait of George Washington was removed to be preserved. For this act, she was deemed a heroine of the early Republic. Be assured, Mrs. Madison's Macaw was also evacuated and would later join them at their new residence. When the couple returned to Washington after the evacuation, the White House had been destroyed. The President and First Lady took up residence at Colonel John Taylor's home, known as the Octagon House. The only reason this home had been preserved, because it had been occupied by the French ambassador who flew his country's flag on the property to save it. Dolly did not like the Octagon House. The mansion was located at 1799 New York Northwest and was built in 1799. The rent was high, and the servants and the president had not been well since moving in. The roof leaked and the cellar was damp. There, John Madison and his wife would live until his term ended in 1817. After Madison's presidency, the couple lived at his plantation once again, where she continued to be a charming hostess. Sadly, former President Madison would die leaving his wife to organize his papers and diaries. Congress authorized $55,000 to prepare seven volumes of his works, 
including the accounts of what occurred at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. I'm Jody from Reality TV Podcast, your source for snarky reality TV recaps and co-host of Moms on the Rocks Podcast. The former First Lady moved to a home at Lafayette Square owned by her sister and husband, Richard Cutts. She lived there with her butler, Paul Jennings, and her niece, Anna Payne. The home was a three-story federal style where frequently Dolly Madison would be seen sitting on the porch at 721 Madison Place Northwest, rocking in a chair which ran along the facade. When Dolly had left for Washington, D.C., she had left the family plantation in the care of her son, John Payne Todd. He was an alcoholic and had to be rescued from debtor's prison in 1830 by James and Dolly. He was not able to run the plantation to generate a profit. Dolly began to sell off the slaves, the furnishings, and finally the plantation to pay her debts. In 1848, Dolly was almost completely destitute. Congress then bought the remaining papers of her late husband. Upon her death, her personal papers and letters were burned as they had been for Martha Washington's as well. In 1849, Dolly died at the age of 81 at the Cutts Madison House, where she would sit in her rocking chair on the porch. First, she was buried in the public vault of the Congressional Cemetery. Then she was interred in the Cutts Vault, and finally she was laid to rest next to her husband at Mount Pillar in 1858. President James Taylor gave her eulogy, and he used the term First Lady, which would remain as the title to subsequent wives of presidents. Cutts Madison House was bought by Rear Admiral Charles Wilkes in 1851. The Admiral moved the entrance to H Street Northwest and removed the west side porch on the building. Shortly after her death, a ghost was said to be seen. Dolly was on that porch, rocking in her chair. Later, after the porch was removed, she could still be seen rocking where it had been. When men would walk by, going to and from the Washington Club, a prominent social club at the time, they could be seen tipping their hat at her as they walked by. Not only was she seen at this house, Dolly had been reported to be seen at the White House Rose Garden, which scared two workers during the Wilson administration. She had planted it before the War of 1812. President Wilson's wife replaced the colonial garden. Even when the roses aren't in bloom, the scent of roses would linger in the air in the halls of the White House. Even at the Octagon House, Dolly's spirit has been seen. The Octagon House is said to be one of the most haunted in Washington, D.C., Dolly Madison is seen usually in the front hall and the drawing room, and reportedly, the smell of lilacs is noticeable in the air when her apparition is present. The other well-known ghost story is the mysterious ringing over the servants' call bells. These bells were used to summon the slaves, but were then used to announce the spirit's presence. They were first reported in the mid-1800s and continued to be commented on. The granddaughter of John Taylor III, who also grew up in the house, wrote, quote, The bells rang for a long time after my grandfather Taylor's death, and everyone said that the house was haunted. The wires were cut, yet they still rang. Our dining room servant would come upstairs to ask if anyone rang the bell, and no one had. The wife of Samuel Lawrence Governor Jr., who was the first American consul in Fu Xiao, related the story to the General George D. Ramsey, Chief of Ordnance for the United States Army and Commander of the Washington Arsenal in Washington, D.C., and his experience with the bells. He said, quote, I have been told by the daughters of General George D. Ramsey that upon one occasion, their father was requested by Colonel John Taylor to remain at the Octagon overnight when he was obliged to be absent as a protection to his daughters. While the members of the family were at an evening meal, the bells in the house became ringing violently. 
General Ramsey immediately arose from the table to investigate, but failed to unravel the mystery. The butler, in a state of great alarm, rushed into the dining room and declared that it was the work of an unseen hand. But as they continued to ring, General Ramsey held the rope which controlled the bells, but it is said they were not silenced. Mary Clemmer Ames wrote about this in 1874. Quote, it is an authenticated fact that every night at the same hour, all of the bells would ring at once. One gentleman dining with Colonel Taylor when this mysterious ringing began, being an unbeliever in mysteries and a very powerful man at that, jumped up and caught the bell wires in his hand only to be lifted his entire body from the floor while he was unsuccessful in stopping the ringing. Some declare that it was discovered after a time that rats were the ghosts who rung the bells, although the cause was never discovered. And finally, the family, to secure peace, were compelled to take the bells down and hang them in a different fashion. Among other remedies that had been previously tried were that of exorcism. But the prayers of the priests who had been summoned availed not. This has been Jess. I am the host of the Real Housewife of the West Side podcast, your inside source into all things really happening on the West Coast in the Real Housewives and Celebrity World. The servant's bell has since been removed from the house and noises are no longer reported. The easiest way to see Dolly for the public is probably at the house on the corner of 1520 H Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. Although the Cuts Madison House is not open to the public, visitors still have the chance to see the Phantom First Lady smiling and rocking her chair as they walk along. Thank you, ladies, for telling us how spooky our first ladies have been. We've now had a spooky story. We have a haunted history. Let's add a cryptid into the mix. Or at least a creature of mystery. So let's see what our next member has to add to our dark book. Hey folks, how's it going? My name is Augie Peterson, host of the short stories of Augie Peterson, the podcast. Today I am helping out my friend Courtney by doing some research into Selkies for her Halloween episode. The reason I was interested in reviewing this mythical creature slash cryptid is that my dear friend Jessica Holt came up with some super creative prompts for this thing called Inktober. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a challenge for artists and people supporting those artists like me to draw something new every day based on a random prompt in the month of October. One of Jess's prompts was about a selkie. Being the supportive friend I am to draw that prompt, I had to dive into, pun completely intended, some Google images of the creature. I found out that Selkies are half-women, half-seal goddesses of the sea. So without further ado, I present to you information you didn't know you needed to know about Selkies. Selkies are part of the Scottish mythos. They are capable of something called therianthropy, which is a fancy word for shape-shifting. If the last part of that word sounds familiar, it's probably because you know the word lycanthropy, the disease that werewolves have. The reason the first word is different is thanks to the Greeks. Who else, am I right? Essentially, the first word therian means wild animal or beast. It was typically used to describe the spiritual transformation of people into animals. The inclusion of the lichen part of lycanthropy just specifies that whoever is experiencing it is turning into a wolf. The word selkie means seal in Scots. 
a language different than Scottish and Gaelic because of its location on the European map. To be more specific, the Grey Seal breed. Someone even went as far as to officially state that although the word is both real and used to describe these beings, far superior to mermaids, the word itself, selkie, should only be treated as the word to describe the animal with zero implication that it can shapeshift. No, I'm not kidding. At least, that's what Wikipedia is telling me. His name was Alan Bruford, and he does not have a Wikipedia page of his own, so while I can't corroborate that statement, it definitely sounds like something an Alan would say. On the other hand, another dude named Walter Trail Dennison, who does have a Wikipedia page that I used to corroborate what I'm about to tell you, basically said, and this is not a direct quote, how else are we going to determine the difference between these ladies and mermaids? People are stupid. They'll think it's the same thing. This was in response to some other asshole that overlooked that they were women at all and simply called them mermen. Can you believe this dude? Jeez. He stated it was more accurate because Norse people used to call the, quote, seal wives marmenier, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which means merful. But that's enough about etymology. You want to learn about the cool stuff, right? Cool stuff coming up. Selkies are mythological beings that change from seals to humans by shedding their skin. Yeah, I have no idea how a movie about these ladies hasn't been made yet. Wait, I don't know that there hasn't. I'll get into their media representation later. They originated from folk tales that have roots in the Northern Isles of Scotland. From Wikipedia, quote, The folk tales frequently revolve around female selkies being coerced into relationships with humans by someone stealing and hiding their seal skin. End quote. If you were nodding along to what I just said like you learned something, but had no idea what it was that I really said, me too. Thankfully, there is some clarification further down the page. The typical Selkie story surrounds the plot that a man steals a Selkie's skin, finds her lying naked on the shore, because he has her skin, and compels her to be his wife by holding her skin hostage and hiding it away from her so she can't turn back into a seal and escape. Once a selkie falls for this, she spends her time on land constantly yearning for the sea. She might even have kids with her human husband, I mean, kidnapper. Gross. However, if the selkie finds the skin, she'll slip it back on and head back to the sea, therefore possibly abandoning the children she had. So like, Selkies love being in the sea so much, they leave their husbands with the kids they never wanted and ditch them to deal with the mistakes they made in the first place. Seems fair. Evidently, there are male and female selkies. Males are apparently very seductive in their human form and tend to look for women who have shitty lives. It doesn't say what happens to women that sleep with male selkies, but I can't imagine it's much worse than what happens to the female selkies as far as human males are concerned. Everything we know about Selkies we learned from folklore of some kind. So, because the stories are all rooted in the idea that Selkies are men or women with seal skins, there isn't exactly a guidebook that gives you the set-in-stone details about them. This is especially true because they are mythical creatures that appear in multiple culturally significant folktales. Irish, Scottish, Icelandic, and a few others according to Wikipedia. Like other folktales, these stories can often play on fears or unknowns that people of the time didn't understand, yet attempted to via stories and myths. It seems like tales of selkies, especially those that detail their kin having webbed fingers and toes, was derived from an overall lack of understanding about birth defects and physical abnormalities. 
It seems that there could also be ties to racism in these stories, seeing as Inuit people, those that used seal skin in their everyday life for things like clothing and boats and furniture, were often seen as other, and anyone that interacted with them would be cursed or affected in some way by their ways of living that, in that day and age, were strange to most people. I mentioned earlier that I hadn't heard about these creatures until recently. However, that's probably because these are largely European folktale-based creatures, and I live in the States. In European media and culture, they're represented on occasion and have made their presence known in multiple pieces of media, such as novels, films, and even animations, since the tales first started to circulate. Right about now, you might be wondering, okay, yeah, these selkie things are cool, but what makes them different or better than mermaids or sirens? Well, for one, selkies are known for enjoying the peaceful comfort of dancing in the moonlight in lieu of luring sailors to their death. They would rather break a man's heart than his body. They are also a little more homely and offer a more realistic, in my opinion, variation to the typical skinny, topless mermaid. You think mermaid, you often think young, skinny, beautiful hair and Disney movies. When you find out selkies are half women, half seal, your perspective is forced to imagine a larger body, maybe something curvier. They're also darker, lurk in deep seas and cold areas with nothing more than raw, live fish to eat. If Ariel was a selkie, I have a feeling it would be a very different story. In short, they offer an alternative to what the cookie-cutter version of a mythological creature is supposed to look like. Thanks for listening to me ramble about these mythological creatures. I hope you enjoyed learning about them just as much as I enjoyed researching them. If you're into spooky stories, horror movie series, or interviews with indie artists, check out my podcast. I post a new episode every week. On my blog, I post the short horror stories I later turn into episodes, as well as written versions of my movie reviews. If none of those sound interesting, I also have a few books for sale and even made a found footage horror film you can check out on YouTube. Have a safe and happy Halloween, y'all. Spook you later. Toodaloo. So, Collective, do we think selkies are mythical creatures or cryptids? I would love to meet one. And definitely, considering they don't lure people to their deaths, better than mermaids. Let's go back to haunting history and see what other traumas our pasts have brought us. We have a new member to the coven who hasn't been with us before. Shall we see what haunting history they brought for the dark book? spooky friends and loyal listeners i'm courtney from the we would have burned podcast and this is our spooky edition for the cult of domesticity's halloween special now normally our podcast features a friendly competition between me and my platonic life partner the lovely samantha to bring our listeners the coolest strangest stories in that week's topic today though i am rolling solo to discuss one of the most fascinating and bizarre archaeological discoveries the Plague Vampire, which if you know Samantha at all or you've listened to our podcast before, you should know she's probably secretly very grateful that she's not included on this episode because she hates when I talk about dead bodies. But before we get into finding corpses in terrifying positions, let's talk backtrack into one of the most iconic creatures of the night the vampire. Now long before they were reimagined as aggressive yard decorators like Vlad Tepish or even sparkling teenage stalkers, the vampire was the terrifying visage that could follow in the wake of devastating plagues. 
Now, vampire legends on their own have existed as far back as ancient Greece and Egypt, but it isn't until the first widespread epidemic that we see the narrative taking a whole new turn. For people in the pre-modern world, understanding why so many of their friends and families were falling victims to diseases like the Black Death was less about contamination and exposure to germs and more about your connection to a dark force capable of draining the life away from a once healthy person. Part of this belief stems from how quickly diseases could sweep across a region. During the Black Death or the Bubonic Plague, people often didn't show symptoms of the disease until days after they became contaminated. This gave them just enough time to flee to a new town and spread it there, often to friends and family members, which meant we see entire groups and populations of cities and families and lineages disappearing within just a few decades, which is obviously devastating on a number of levels as historians and leaves a society that is shaken. The plague itself has three variations of the virus that could leave you with anywhere from a week to a day to suffer before you pass on. For those of you who are interested in medical history, those three types are the septicemic, which is bloodborne, the pneumonic, which stays pre- predominantly in your lungs, and the bubonic, which is shown by those iconic buboes in your lymph nodes. Ironically, since the bubonic plague is the one that we most associated with this death, the bubonic strain of the plague is actually probably the one that you are most likely to survive. So you kind of hope for those buboes to show up. Definitely don't want to get the septicemic version because once that hits, you have a 100% fatality rate. So the speed and erratic nature of the spreading virus has people searching for some kind of explanation or source of their misery. People of this era were surrounded by death constantly, changing the way they viewed religion, government, art, and even each other. The suspicion and panic makes it especially easy for stories of sinister beings lingering beyond the grave to become popular. Thus, the plague vampire crept its way into the hearts and minds of those seeking answers. Surprise then that the plague vampire is going to find its home in one of the most gruesome aspects of an outbreak of a plague, that is body removal. In Florence, Italy alone, the Black Death accounted for at least 50 to 60,000 deaths, which nearly halves their population pre-outbreak. The tremendous number of bodies needing burials left cities scrambling to haul away corpses into already overfull mass graves before the disease could spread further. Italy and other regions make use of their smallest islands, like Pavalia, as an ignoble way to end the lives of many lower and middle class victims. It is in these plague pits that we see the tales of the vampire beginning to spread. You see, decomposition is a funny thing. When someone passes away, their bodies go through a series of processes that we now recognize as nothing more than the symptoms of a bacterial breakdown and a muscular reaction to death. It is no surprise for us to see a body twitch long after they've grown cold with the context of rigor mortis, or to see seemingly new nail or hair growth after the skin of the body has already begun to wither. But death in the pre-modern world was still very much a supernaturally charged occurrence. So when the peasant tasked with disposing the bodies of dozens of his neighbors in the nearest mass grave comes across something strange, it's no surprise that they would begin to jump to darker conclusions. Digging down into these pits of loss and anguish to bury a new layer of dead occasionally instead leads to rather fantastical discoveries. Instead of a slowly decaying corpse well on its way to becoming warm food, 
These grave diggers would occasionally find bodies that seemed to resist the pull of their own mortality. Their bodies would be bloated with enough gas to appear whole, with blood trickling from their lips and their fingers curled into claws around new nail growth. You can imagine, too, the psychological damage left alone by the sight of the earth twitching and heaving as the victims buried beneath its surface released the air from their lungs and the gases in their stomach in a slow slide. So it's no surprise to us that these discoveries often lead to alarming tales of vampires and vicious creatures who are responsible for the continued loss of life. The Polish variation of the plague vampire, or the Nakshdarer, presented an even more horrifying image. They pointed to the startling number of female corpses that appeared to be chewing at their shrouds or even making, quote, smacking noises in their graves like a pig that is eating, according to a historian from 1601. As the corpse chewed through their funeral shroud, it was believed that their relatives would slowly grow weaker and weaker, eventually falling to the sinister draw of the vampire. Chewing corpses are typically blamed now on the purge fluid that often seeps out of the mouth and nose during decomposition. It's a dark, blood-like liquid that can stain the shroud around the mouth and erode the fabric enough that, in time, it can appear to have been ripped away by the blunt teeth that it covered. The nature of the Black Death also assisted in tales of vampirism's popularity. Oftentimes, victims of the pneumonic strain, for example, that attacked the lungs, would find themselves coughing up blood and leaving their mouths stained red with lesions puckering their lips. These lesions and traces of blood were believed to be used by the vampires to infect others. They called them living vampires, and these living vampires were usually even executed by beheading so that when they were buried, they could be placed with their heads uh, still unattached between their knees in order to prevent them from rising again. I'll pause here so you can all gasp in astonishment that the most common suspects for vampirism, especially among living victims, were women. I know. Once proof of a vampire was discovered in one of the mass graves, a rock or a brick would typically be inserted into the mouth to prevent the creature from eating away at any more victims. A famous example of this was discovered by archaeologist Matteo Barini, when he uncovered the body of a 60-year-old plague victim with a rock shoved into her skull through her opened jaw. The shroud, too, of any of these victims must be removed from their mouth, as the shroud is the method that they used to suckle the life away from others. A few recovered medieval vampires even went a step further and had uh, metal stakes driven through their chests of the recently deceased in order to keep them from rising as vampires literally staking them down in their coffins. This was especially important in Western Europe in order to prevent bad men, who were more likely to resist the pull of death without taking others with them, from returning to life. In 2014, Bulgarian archaeologist Nikolai Ovtrov uncovered a gruesome reminder that these beliefs were not limited to Central Europe. While excavating an ancient Thracian city, his team found the bodies of several supposed vampires who were part of an anti-vampirism ritual. They estimate that these bodies came from somewhere around the 13th century, so we're still hanging out in the Middle Ages. But these victims would have fallen under suspicion, most likely due to an unusual death, like suicide, or if the person was especially nasty when they were alive. One of the male victims that was found at this site was bisected with a heavy metal rod that would have been removed from a plow to use in the ceremony. It was so heavy 
in fact, that it popped his collarbone out of place in the process. His left leg below the knee was also removed by whoever performed the ritual and placed beside the body, probably to keep him from being able to walk out of the grave and seek out another victim. The only good news in this story is that all of these injuries were occurred or occurred after death, so he didn't at least have to suffer that alive. The townspeople even went so far as to place the bodies of a young woman and child who died around the same time in the pose of the Virgin Mary and her child so that they could be buried to ward off evil spirits that might come from this bad man beside them. And these people represent the, just the most recent discovery of uh, vampire prevention in Bulgaria. And they're only one case out of a hundred recovered vampire bodies. These stories have become so popular, in fact, that they outlast the Black Death to return during outbreaks of other diseases like tuberculosis and cholera. Famously, the very first American vampire case involved the infamous Mercy Brown in 1892, who was targeted in a vampire panic after her entire family fell ill from tuberculosis. Vampirism became the only reasonable explanation for why so many of the Browns had died so young, and managed to convince the town to dig up the bodies of each of the Browns that had already died to discover which one of them looked to be the vampire in actuality. And naturally, once it was discovered that Mercy Brown's body was not decaying at the rate as everyone else, almost like she had been put in a crypt in the middle of winter, so essentially a walk-in freezer, the townspeople decided that the best way to prevent Mercy from taking the rest of her family to the grave with her was to make a potion out of the remains of her heart and liver which were then, of course, eaten by her living rel relatives, which I'm sure was delicious and not at all filled with the germs that would eventually kill the rest of them. Despite the fact that the plague vampire has largely fallen out of favor when looking for explanations for disease outbreaks, it remains a fascinating icon for a period of history where people were struggling to explain the nightmare they found themselves living. It was easy to blame some nameless corpse or deceased neighbor for the suffering of others instead of trying to deal with a much more complicated issue, like unseen germs or the difficulties with keeping clean when so many people are falling victim to a disease. Bloodied shrouds and twi twitching corpses possess just enough malignant potential to ease some of the panic of helplessness through the ritual of ensuring that they wouldn't add you to the list of ver their victims. Still, the sight of ancient bones twisted in one final scene of misery around the stake piercing their chest or the brick crammed into their mouths is an image not easily forgotten by anyone. If you've enjoyed this tale of death and the darker sides of history, come check out the We Would Have Burned podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Patreon. Once you're there, you can vote on your favorite story each week chat with us and other listeners, and even submit topics that you'd like to learn more about. Until then, thanks for listening, and happy Halloween! Thank you, Other Courtney. There are actually more Courtneys to come in this episode, dear collective. So remember, always double-check if you think someone is a vampire. Maybe they just have tuberculosis. And now, if you're ready for it, I believe we have that Other Courtney neck. We have Boop Hour to add something a bit spoopy to our dark book. Happy Halloween! <laughs> it's Spoop Hour. This is Sasha. This is Courtney. We aren't in the same place right now, so if that doesn't line up exactly, we'll say it's because we're we didn't line up the audio well and not it's because we're fine. dumb. No, I think it lined up. <laughs> yeah, we'll it'll see. be fine.
It'll, It'll be, be fine. fine. Anyway, we're here on the Cult of Domesticity, the other Ooh. Courtney's pod, to tell Courtney about a local legend. Yes. What local legend, Sasha? Hmm. The Bunny Man. Ooh. Now, if you're sitting there thinking the Bunny Man doesn't sound very scary at all, that's he's a bunny. He's a little bunny. A he's just gonna be cutie. Go eat some carrots and have really good eyesight. You're wrong. That's <laughs> not the Bunny Man. That's very cute, though. So keep thinking about that. I guess he's um. How do you say this? Uh, well, okay, he's an urban legend, local urban legend, yep. and uh, ingrained in my psyche enough since seventh grade that uh, I don't know. I'm still an adult, and I don't want to go to Clifton at night. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I heard this story probably around the seventh grade, and then throughout high school, and I was like, <laughs> "This is dumb. I love it." So yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Sasha, do you want to go into what the legend is, and then I'll go into some of the history? Yeah, so there's a couple different versions of the same story um, that got passed around, you know, the cafeteria in middle school. <laughs> um, but the le- one of the legends is that there was, if you go to this tunnel, that's a one-way tunnel in the middle of the night, um, there's a chance that you will be murdered by the bunny man. Um, the bunny man <laughs> has many forms. Sometimes he is an escaped convict from a local mental institution, which there isn't one. There's never <laughs> um, been one here. <laughs> That's no. fine. Uh, there's a, just an escaped convict. There is a crazy person just in the woods with some weapons and whatnot. But a lot of the similar threads that go through are, you know, teenagers lurking where they're not supposed to and coming across the corpses of dead rabbits. Sometimes they're just scattered on the ground. Sometimes they're <laughs> hanging from trees. You just have just lots of dead rabbits, hence the bunny man. And you don't want to be caught at the tunnel on Halloween night because he'll get you and skin you just like his rabbits. Ooh. You know. Ooh. But really, we don't go there because the cops watch that tunnel for vandalism. Yeah. And also, it's like the it's a one way tunnel where like I think cars can only go or come through like as long as there's not another car on the other side. And so it's just a hazard. You know, you don't want to be in there. It's not very well lit. It's concrete. It's, you know. But when you're a little seventh grader (laughs) and you know that, you know, one town over where some some students from our school did live um, in that area, Mm -hmm. some of the teachers um, and they, you know, come to our school because our boundary lines are weird. But there were kids who were like, yeah, oh, I've been to the Bunny Man Bridge, mm-hmm. you know, and it was spooky and I almost died and <laughs> his hook hand almost grabbed me and my friends. Ah! <laughs> and it's like, what? I didn't know he had a hook hand. Well, you he saw does that on version. an episode of Riverdale. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so scary version- enough. <laughs> Sorry, the version I heard mm-hmm. is that the blah, blah, escaped mental institution, blah, blah, yeah. criminally insane, blah, blah, murderer. But most importantly, he is dressed in a bunny costume. Yeah, I've heard that version too. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Well, and that's, you know, about the time that Dar- Donnie Darko came out too. And so mm-hmm. people saw the bu- the rabbit guy in Donnie Darko and they were like, oh, it's the bunny man. Um, There was a, a time in college where I was at... Uh, JMU and someone dressed in a bunny costume with his hand bandaged and it was like bright red like someone cut off his foot was just standing on the quad in the middle of the night with a bag of candy 
It wasn't Halloween or anything. This was like early September, like what? second or third week of the semester. Seems normal. It was upsetting. <laughs> Um, as an adult, I still haven't been to Bunny Man Bridge, even though I've been to Clifton. Like, just mm-hmm. there, it's a cute little hit, yeah. Yeah, town. Yeah, I have friends who live there. Um, but one of my friends, one night, we were driving down the Fairfax County Parkway, and she was she was driving. I was in the passenger seat. And she goes, "We could very easily just go to Bunny Man Bridge right now." Yes. And I was like, "You will do no such thing." And she was like, "You're in my car. I'm driving. Like, I can just do this. I and can I was go like, wherever I want." If you want to stay friends with me, you will take me home right now. <laughs> Aww, <laughs> Actually, I... she didn't take me home. We went out to eat ramen after that. And then Aww. she took me home, but she didn't make me go to Bunny Man Bridge. That's very nice. Yeah. I have been to Bunny Man Bridge. I don't know if we said we're talking about Northern Virginia. I think yeah. we mentioned Clifton and Fairfax, but not specifically yeah. what state. So Northern Virginia, I went to Bunny Man Bridge my senior year for my behind the wheel class to get uh, my yes, driver's license. Yeah. Our, for whatever reason, our driving instructor was like, oh, we're going to go to Bunny Man Bridge. And a girl in my group, like, super freaked out. And yeah. meanwhile, I'm like, it's just a concrete overpass. I don't get it. Didn't you have a friend who lived there and had to just commute through there on the daily? Or was that one of our other friends? I think that must have been one of our other friends. Yeah, I don't think there I was someone, someone, someone we know had a friend who lived in, like, inside where that tunnel is. Oh. So it was basically, like, on the daily, she just had to pass under and through that yeah. bridge. It's mostly a woodsy area. The scariest thing about it is that there is this legend of a homicidal maniac, possibly with a hook hand, possibly dressed as a rabbit, possibly just a fan of skinning rabbits. And hanging rabbits off of trees and and bushes. Yeah, Blair Witch style. That's just upsetting. But weirdly, it is actually based in history. Coltney's like, why did I agree to let these two people tell me about the Bunny Man Bridge? This isn't history that I signed up for. Good news, Coltney. So... The first incident actually happened October 19th, 1970, which when we're recording this was two days and 29, no, 39 years ago. (laughs) I don't know what year it is. This is the spookiest part. And this incident involved U.S. Air Force Academy cadet Robert Bennett and his fiancée. And they were visiting relatives in Burke. Now, if you've never been to Northern Virginia, it's kind of all stacked on top of each other. So Burke, Clifton, and Fairfax are kind of all like wedged. Yeah, it's kind of like approximately in the middle of the county and the county is next to D.C. So just it's within that area. Yeah. Basically, Robert and his fiance had gone to a football game and they parked their car in a field on a, a road in Burke, allegedly to visit an uncle who lived across the street from where the car was parked. But sure. they sat in the car while the motor was running and I'm sure they were talking. Oh, Just kidding. Of course. I'm pretty sure they were necking, which like respect. We Canoodling. all deserve we all deserve to canoodle in cars. And they're engaged. And they were engaged, so it's basically legal. And, and it, it was, was only seventies. Nine years ago. It was 30, the seventies. Everybody was whatever. canoodling all the time. It's I don't fine. know what year it is. I don't either. I thought it was nineteen ninety nine. That's why I said nineteen seventy was twenty nine years ago. <laughs> oh boy. So anyway, so they were in the front seat talking and maybe looking at a map which is what the kids are calling it these days and then they notice something moving outside of the rear window of their car so they're like oh that's weird and then the front passenger window was smashed and there was somebody dressed in all white standing there Um. and robert is like what and so he starts like moving the car because the car's 
engine was still running. So he starts like moving the car to drive away. And the man is screaming at them about trespassing and being like, you're on my property. I have your license plate number. I saw you. You're trespassing, blah, 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 blah. And so the couple's like, we're just going to go ahead and bounce out of here this is this is too weird for us but and, also why are you dressed in a bunny suit well that's the thing later when they were recounting to, to police uh robert described the man as having like a coat like a almost a ku klux klan robe and his fiance goes no he was in a white bunny costume and when they were reporting this to the police it's because they found in the front passenger seat by where the window had been smashed a hatchet so he had thrown a hatchet through their window which is a pretty extreme response to alleged trespassing yeah you can just say get off my lawn yeah you crazy kids and like shake your fist at the clouds like it's don't throw a fucking hatchet through someone's windshield. Let's let's stop with the like throwing weapons at other people. Yeah. But anyway, it's not safe. So they reported it, but they were like, I don't know, we didn't get a good look at him, whatever. And so they kind of went on their merry way and that was the end of it until uh-oh. About mm, 10 days later, still in Ooh. 1970, which was not 29 years ago. And this is in the Kings Park West area of Northern Virginia, if you're familiar. And that was when construction security guard Paul Phillips was just wandering around because they were building up what would eventually become like houses and a shopping center in Kings Park Mm -hmm. West. And there's (laughs) gas stations and Whole Foods and stuff. You know, civilization, Whole Foods, Starbucks, whatever. So (laughs) in the 1970s, so Paul Phillips sees a guy right by the construction. And because he's a good construction security guard, he's like, hey, bro, you can't be here. What are you doing? And the man was standing on the porch of an unfinished home. Not great. And he was wearing a gray, black and white bunny costume. Not great. Not great. And the security guard said that he looked like he was like maybe 20 And the most notable thing about him, other than the bunny costume, was he was holding an axe and chopping at a porch post. And that was when the security guard is like, I'm sorry, what are we doing here? And the guy chopping at the porch post goes, if you come any closer, I'll cut off your fucking head. Ah. You're trespassing. Get off of my property. I'll chop off your head. And those are the two real incidents that would eventually inspire the legend of the bunny man. It did... Was his face showing through the bunny costume? Is that why his security guard was able to identify that he was, like, 20? I'm assuming it was, because, like, I can't imagine it was, like, Donnie Darko style. It had a head, because I don't... Well, no, because they had those back then. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the mascot that I saw, you know, all of 10 years ago in 2000... Well, 11 years ago in 2008. Uh-huh. Yeah, he had, like, a full, like, you know, like a... Like a face head covered. mask. Yeah, like, not quite a furry, but, like, more like a college mascot. Or, like, the Easter Bunny. yeah. Yeah. They had stuff kind of like that back then. It was creepy. Like, if you've looked at any college mascots from that era, oh, yeah. they're like, really it, upsetting. It, look at old-timey Easter photos, and it's like, oh, how did anyone awful. survive childhood and not just drop dead of fear? Right? But I guess that the, his face was showing because he was like, he was 20 years old, he's five foot eight, and he weighed about 175 pounds, which are not things you would be able to tell if his head was covered. Yeah. Like, you would, who knows how tall he is? He's got ears also, on. Kudos to that security guard for being like, that guy is taking a hatchet to a new house that's still under construction, and uh, I'm going to go over there and talk to him. I'm going to do my security guard job and guard things securely. I mean, he threatened to kill him, but if he not thought to stay any farther away, it's like, 
boy, you could have been dead. Yeah, you were really committed to your job. And the best part is, according to Wikipedia, the Washington Post and other like serious periodicals reported on these weird incidents. And the headlines included man in bunny costume sought in Fairfax. The (laughs) rabbit reappears. Bunny man seen. And my favorite one, bunny reports are multiplying. (laughs) That's, oh my God. Good, good. I love it. Whoever wrote that title, I'm glad. Yeah. Oh, one thing that I remember hearing a couple of times from like other middle schoolers was about (laughs) like ritual sacrifice of the Mm -hmm. rabbits. That was one thing I forgot to mention. Yeah, there is mention in this Wikipedia article that I pulled up to refresh my memory of when the dates are and what year it is um, that one of the Washington Post articles said that it ate someone's runaway cat, which is like the Ah! bunny man didn't eat a cat. He's the bunny man. If he's eating anything, it's bunnies. He's eating bunnies. Yeah. Like he's not the cat man. Delicious and nutritious. (laughs) And in 1973, a student at the University of Maryland College Park submitted a research paper chronicling the encounters with the bunny man. And she found (laughs) that there were basically just these two incidents, but there were 54 variations. And that's in 1973, three years after it happened. So you can imagine that in the more than 29 years since... A lot has happened, and there are, like, thousands of versions now. Oh, absolutely. And if you continue to, like, grow up in that area, um, you're bound to, like, continue hearing them. Now yeah. I'm kind of curious. Like, I want to ask my, like, friends who work at our high school that we mm-hmm. went to, like, if the kids still talk about Bunny Man. We should follow up with that. So yeah. check out Spoop Hour. We're going to collect some data on the <laughs> Bunny Man legend and report back for what teens in 2019 have to say about the elusive man dressed as a rabbit but yeah thanks for having us on coltney we're sorry we couldn't make it work to record with you but happy halloween everybody happy halloween watch out for the bunny man if anybody throws a hatchet through your window tell the cops and like maybe don't be a bunny for halloween be safe (laughs) don't be a rabbit don't be a rabbit (laughs) thank you spoopney and sasha for that wonderful wonderful recounting of the bunny man i'm gonna have to come visit and we can go mock this together because it seems thoroughly amusing so collective we've got a couple more stories for you and we have another horrific history coming up by a new member a new friend to the coven and i think you're gonna enjoy this one so shall we see what's offered to this dark book so please Enjoy Ben from Dark Histories telling us about the Phantom Barber. Prior to the Second World War, Mississippi was the poorest state in the entire U.S. Heavily suffering from the toll of the Great Depression, it was a land whose floundering economy focused solely on agriculture. As the bells of war sounded, however, found itself pulled up from poverty by the Great War Machine. Pascagoula, a small coastal city with a population of around 4,000, saw its citizenship swell more than threefold as the state's population shifted to urban areas to work in the newly created industrial manufacturing positions. Pascagoula was the home of the standout workforce in this regard, with the founding of Ingalls, the largest shipbuilding company in the US. As the company took on more contracts from the US Navy, The demand for labour continued to grow until, by 1942, its workforce peaked at over 12,000, whilst the population of Pascagoula rose in step to over 14,000. It was amongst this smashing together of people, 
newly confined by the constrictions of urban life that saw a crime spree break out in the hot summer months of 1942. One person sought to take advantage of this wave of criminality to carry out a very different series of break-ins, a man who would only ever be known as the Phantom Barber. As darkness fell over the Our Lady of Victory's convent during the first week of a warm 1942 June in the city of Pascagoula, its searing white spire struck out from the red brick building piercing the night sky. Aside from the luminance from the pointed roof of the convent, the town found itself plunged into an almost complete darkness brought about by the recent enforced blackouts, a precaution that had seen many cities along the Gulf Coast follow suit, a symbol of the serious efforts taken to aid the war effort. The din of the industrial shipbuilding sector continued its never-ending drone as families tucked themselves into their beds for the night and men on the night shift took to their factory work to satiate the US Navy in their thirst for wartime supremacy. Mary Evelyn Briggs, aged 11, and her close friend and roommate, 12-year-old Edna Marie Hadel, were already fast asleep in the convent's dormitories when the sound of tearing abruptly seared throughout the quiet room. The girls barely stirred as a figure appeared at the window, tore at mosquito netting and climbed into the room. He bent over one of the sleeping girls and set to work, blades flashing in the moonlight, sending faint shadows across the walls. Mary Evelyn, sensing something standing over her, woke and with bleary eyes saw a man bend close to her and shush her quietly. It was an unsuccessful attempt to not shock the young girl and she let out a yell that rang through the concrete walls of the convent. The man turned to the window and jumped out of sight. It wasn't until she had time to calm down that her roommate, Edna Marie, noticed that her hair on the left side of her head had been butchered, shorn roughly, leaving six inches of blonde hair hanging loosely next to her ear. I saw the figure of a kinda short, fat man bending over me with something shiny in his hand, and he was fooling with my hair. When he saw me open my eyes, he said, shh, and I yelled. He jumped out of the window. The man had not hurt either young girl, nor had he stolen anything from the convent before he was caught. He had simply sheared off a large patch of Mary Evelyn's hair. It was a bizarre story, and one that the press were quick to jump on instantly calling the perpetrator the Phantom Barber. Newspapers throughout the US ran with the story, sandwiched between pieces on British raids on Nazi-occupied France and news from the Russian front. Stories of the Phantom Barber came with a slight tongue-in-cheek twang. Locally, people were taking it far more seriously. The local police, headed up by police chief Azel, issued a reward for information that led to a capture totaling $400, made up of $100 donations from the Ingram Shipbuilding Company, the police, a local bank, and a second local manufacturer. The investigation, however, soon hit a wall. Bloodhounds were released around the convent, focusing on a track that led from the girl's window, and though the dogs initially followed it, they ran out of steam when it entered a forested area, with police suggesting that perhaps the Phantom had stashed a bicycle in the forest and escaped after dashing there to collect it. On June the 11th, just a handful of nights later, once again the town found itself in near darkness as the blackout was carried out. One by one, the cities along the Gulf Coast faded into the murky shoreline and the landscape fell into a quiet, indistinct shapelessness. The Phantom Barber, then a minor celebrity, was still in the backs of most people's minds that night as they climbed into bed in the darkness. In truth, people would have perhaps benefited from a touch more vigilance. The scissor-wielding intruder had not been the only individual that had twisted the blackout into his favour, 
and recently the city police had privately noted an increasing wave of robberies and break-ins as those less scrupulous sought to use the dark streets to their advantage. As eight-year-old Carol Peaty slept away in her bed, she didn't even stir as the phantom struck for a second time, tearing a slit in her window screen to climb through. He silently cut the little girl's hair and then left as he came. When she awoke the next morning, the first she became aware of the crime was when her parents saw her skewed lock messily clipped away. Once more, the phantom barber had entered the house through the window under the cover of darkness, stripped the girl's hair and disappeared into the night. He had not stolen anything from the girl's room, nor injured the girl in any other way, aside from relieving her of a handful of her hair. The second attack saw an abrupt change in reporting of the phantom barber. Though he retained his melodramatic name, the press now pointed out the apparent rise in local crime over the past weeks, and people began to protest against the blackouts. The local police responded to the fears of the city by successfully applying for a relaxation on the enforced blackouts, which people noted made it much easier for a criminal to slink away from a scene unnoticed. Police Chief Azell then enlisted the help of six volunteers from the local citizenry and equipped them with both a pistol and the powers to arrest or incapacitate a crime suspect. With the story stretching out from the press far across the county, he also warned, Just about every man in town is armed. I would advise strangers to proceed with caution. Rather strangely, the phantom barber had begun slipping into scapegoat territory amongst the press, with many stories now choosing to attribute not only the shearing of the two girls' hair, but also a string of petty crimes throughout Pascagoula. Parents were warned to remain vigilant and up the security in their homes in order to stamp out the elusive criminal's nighttime spree. The Petey family was one such family that had elected to sleep together in order to up their level of security. As people dimmed their evening lamps and retired to bed, many families had recently chosen to sleep in the same room together, and husbands had, on occasion, stayed home from their jobs on the night shift. This was a move which had not been missed by the press, and the Phantom Barber was quickly becoming an enemy of the war effort in the eyes of many. Eleven days later, on June the 22nd, as the Petey family holed up together in the master bedroom of their home to sleep, the phantom barber made his third appearance. It was midnight when Carol Petey awoke, feeling violently ill after feeling a smothering sensation on her face. Once again, the phantom had been and gone, leaving a wide gash in the window screening. I didn't even know my hair had been cut until I reached up to my head. It was a lot shorter on one side than the other. Owing to the layout of the room, the police formed the opinion that the intruder had not actually had to enter the house on this occasion. Shielded by parked cars on the nearby street, he had leant in through the window and sliced off a section around two inches square of Carol Peaty's hair. Carol herself claimed that she had been chloroformed and it was the effects of the drug that had woken her. Sabotage of the war effort was by now the clear frontrunner for motive in the crimes. Once again, no violence against the victims had been carried out and no property had been stolen. The barber was simply there to spook the neighbourhood by shearing off locks of their hair as they slept. It appeared to be working. An element of hysteria began to spread throughout the city as waves of families protested against the local police for not doing more in the dimly lit streets at night and men began staying home from work more and more frequently in order to protect their families. 
and Mrs. Wally had fired at a man in the street simply because he had stood too near to her window. Police Chief Azell told the press that he reluctantly had come to the conclusion that the barber and the ever-increasing, though not always reported, string of crimes attributed to him was a calculated form of sabotage. Just as quickly as the phantom barber had struck, so too did the police retaliate, and on the 25th of June, three days after the attack on Carol Petey, police put out reports that the phantom had been captured. Though it would be several weeks before his name would be officially released, the arrested suspect was 57-year-old William Dolan, a local German-educated chemist. When his name and background were released to the press in mid-July, they quickly put two and two together, publishing details of his educational background in Germany and declaring him a Nazi sympathiser with a motive to impair the moral of war workers. Curiously, the attack that had led to his arrest was not the string of midnight haircuts, but an assault with an iron bar on Terrell Heidelberg and his wife, a local couple that had taken place on the 13th of June. Dolan had quarrelled with Heidelberg's father, who operated as the local magistrate. He had been previously arrested on a string of trespassing misdemeanours, and Dolan had requested Magistrate Heidelberg to reduce his bail from $500 to $100, which was refused. In retribution, the police said he had carried out the attack with an iron bar on the man's son and daughter after breaking into their house as they slept. It was a fairly different MO from the previous phantom barbering, a fact that was pointed out in the press. The Heidelbergs were the only victims of the barber who suffered physical harm beyond losing their hair. Though this fact appeared to be promptly ignored by Police Chief Azell, who insisted, we're sure it's the man. Backing up this confidence was a claim that upon searching Dolan's property, the police had come across strands of human hair behind his house which matched the colour of Carol Peaty's. Several members of the community gave damning statements against Dolan, calling him out as a German sympathiser and signing statements as such. On November the 19th, William Dolan was sentenced to 10 years prison for assault and battery and the attempted murder of Heidelberg and his wife. Throughout both his trial and incarceration, he protested against his sentence, claiming he was innocent and even took a lie detector test carried out by a local private investigator in his prison cell, though this was later discounted by the authorities. Dolan was eventually released in 1948, five years early, on grounds of good behaviour after serving just half of his sentence. From the early summer of 1942, the Phantom Barber was never seen nor heard from again. Whether or not William Dolan was the Phantom Barber after all seems a question that can be easily up for debate. Although his arrest appeared to coincide with the ceasing of the attack, had the real barber simply used it as an opportune time to bow out of the field, slipping into the shadows as he had on the night of the attacks? The assault against the Heidelbergs would have been a dramatic shift in MO if it had been the same man, and it would appear that both the stealthy midnight shearing and the assault were both just crimes in what had been, with the blackout, an ideal set of circumstances to facilitate a small crime spree in Pascagoula. Dolan was never officially charged with breaking and entering, nor the cutting of the girl's hair, so it seems the police had simply used Dolan's arrest as a catch-all in the press to sweep up the headline-making stories of the Phantom Barber that had caused such a stir in the city. If this is true, however, then what of the hair found behind the house? Police Chief Azell claimed that it had been sent off to the FBI for analysis, but it was never mentioned again in any press reports. So did it exist at all? 
or if it did exist, was it really found behind Dolan's house? The details of the story begin to feel remarkably convenient. So what did happen to the Phantom Barber, and why had he chosen to stalk into young girls' homes that June to relieve them of their hair? Whatever the reason, it is by now more than likely lost in the obscurity of history, leaving us only to guess at the short, fat man's twisted motives for a crime that remains as unsettling as it is bizarre. I'm Ben from Dark Histories. Thanks very much for listening to my story and um, thanks very much to Courtney for inviting me to take part in this collaboration. It's been really fun writing this sort of minified version of my usual show. So yeah, thanks very much and happy Halloween. As Halloween comes to a close, so must, unfortunately, our coven's meeting here beside the campfire on hopefully for all of you a lovely night. But we have one final member who stepped forward, apparently with a surprise guest, to put forward an offering for the Dark Book. Shall we see what she has to offer? You'll know her very well. She's been on here a lot. Heather of Nature vs. Narcissism. All right, um, Courtney, we are here to tell you some ghost stories, and I say we, not me and my other personalities, but me and Nikki. Hi, girl! Surprise! <laughs> so, my name's Heather. For all of Courtney's listeners, I am from Nature vs. Narcissism, Status Pending, and Ohio 88. And I am Nikki T., the notorious Nikki T., from Strictly Homicide Podcast. Yeah, and we're here to talk about some ghosty, scary stories for you guys. Um, Nikki, do you want to start off? I think we have four stories total. We're both going to tell you guys yep. two. Awesome. So <laughs> the first story, okay, I didn't grow up here in Arkansas. Most people know that. If you don't, I grew up in California and moved to Arkansas as an adult. But um, I was trying to remember the, hold on, I think bugs me. Okay. I was trying to remember the ghost stories from my hometown and like, really, we just don't have any. They all suck. They were really horrible. <laughs> Arkansas has tons of them. Um, so I wanted to cover some Arkansas cases. The first one is, um, my husband actually talked about it all the time and he has been there and um, has tried to see the lights that they say you can see. And he said he's it's never he's like, I've been there a million times and it's never happened. So um, it's called Woodson Woodson Lateral Road. And it's a road out in the country about 18 miles south of Little Rock in Woodson, Arkansas, which I didn't even know was a town until I looked up <laughs> where it was. Um, you can get there off the uh, 530 or I'm sorry. They don't say V here. You can get there from Interstate 530. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. I need to drive there. <laughs> well, I was thinking, you know, I, I actually might want No, I don't want to go to this one. It's probably. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So legend says that if you go down Woodson Lateral Road, you'll see a motorcycle with the headlights. So you'll see the headlights of a motorcycle coming at you. And it's supposed to like go right through you. Ooh. Um, I also read that you're supposed to hear, hear a motorcycle or like a motor. 
Um, the tr- what happened was the dri- a driver of the motorcycle was on Woodson Lateral Road and um, hit by a car of drunk drivers. Okay, no, it said hit by a car load of drunk drivers. Oh my god, how many steering wheels were in that car? Like, right? <laughs> <laughs> And Arkansans, can we please stop partying in our vehicles? Yeah, that's okay. not. I mean, there's not even enough space to have any fun. Um, and this was only one of the sources I found. Uh, I didn't look all around. So, <laughs> anyways, so they they hit. He was um, hit by the car and left to die. So people say that he is coming back to get his revenge. And when you go out there, that's why he's like the one driving the motorcycle and will drive it, like try and hit you and drive through you. Oh my god! <laughs> I don't know if it's real because. Hubby says it's not, but he is a not a he doesn't believe in ghosts, so that might be why. Do you? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Sometimes I'm one of those I have to see it to believe it. But um, there was lots of freaky incidents that happened growing up that made me say that really happened. I wasn't dreaming of it. So. Tell me about these freaky incidents because I have two <laughs> freaky incidents that I'm going to tell you in my first story. Well, when I was 16, we moved from um, our little house or no, our house in Pismo Beach, like the greatest city ever, perfect weather, to um, the high desert of California, uh, meth central. <laughs> oh, my God. 16 too, right in the middle of high school, right? Um, we move into this house. I hated the house. I swore something was wrong with it. And one night I was sleeping and my mom had these wheels on the bottom of her kitchen table chairs. And this chair just went flying like across. I heard it, you know, I didn't get up and check because I like couldn't move. pissed your pants. <laughs> oh, uh, basically, I don't think I moved until morning. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that happened. And I know I didn't imagine that. And um, then this one, I was staying the night at a friend's house. And I think I was like 15. It was right before I moved. And I swear I woke up, opened my eyes and there was a face over me. <laughs> Because her mom, I screamed, I screamed, and her mom came in there, are you okay? And I was like, there's a face I saw. And they swore that their grandmother haunted that house. So I was going to say maybe sleep paralysis, but if they think that their grandma haunted the house, I mean, shit, you probably saw grandma. Yeah. So um, I don't remember what it looked like. I don't know if I was dreaming, but so I'm like up in the air, just like everything else. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that kind of transitions into my first story. It's like a a twofer kind of story, though, I guess, because both of these incidents happened in the same house. So, um, so these are real stories. These are real stories that happened to me. That's what made me believe. I don't don't have very many. I mean, those ones aren't that good. So I'm going to have to tell you (laughs) ghost stories in Arkansas. (laughs) That's fine. Um, so We lived in this house that, I don't know, it was kind of like an open house. I don't know. It's, it was like a weird shit. It was like just a giant fucking square. <laughs> and, you know, mm-hmm. so like from like the living room to the kitchen, it was just like this weird U shape, like <laughs> through the doorways. You know what I mean? There wasn't like really any shape to the house. It was just like a fucking square. So yeah. for a while... <clears throat> My dad worked as a police officer, so his schedule was like a little off. He usually worked thirds. So when he wasn't working, he was just in the habit of staying awake later. So he would Mm -hmm. sleep on the couch in the living room while my mom would sleep in the bed in the far back bedroom. 
Well, back there is where the toilet was, the restroom. <laughs> we were all the way upstairs, the kids. Um, and I remember one night I got up. It was, I can't even remember the time. It was sometime between like 2 and 4 a.m. So like it was like dead middle of the night, mm-hmm. dark as hell. I come down the stairs and it directly like drops down into the living room where my dad was. TV is on, um, but it's just like the end of a movie. So like it's just like a blank screen or whatever, you know. But mm-hmm. no other lights are on in the house. So I pass by my dad. He's sleeping on the couch. And I go through the kitchen to go to the bathroom. Well, the entryway where the bathroom is, it's like just a small cubby hole type area, you know, like it's just like this little mm-hmm. square area that goes left to the bathroom straight to her room. Well, as I'm walking through the kitchen, granted, the lights are still off. I see a figure and I think it's my mom just standing in that doorway, like where you would be blocking the bathroom. Like I can't walk any further. And I'm like, I stop because she's just standing there, like not moving. And it's just like an outline of her. And I'm like, oh my God, like, am I that asleep? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, mom, no movement, mom, (laughs) no movement. And then my dad wakes up from me saying mom so loud and he goes, Heather, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) You know, because that's Mm -hmm. how we talk to each other. And I'm like, mom's just standing in the kitchen, not moving. He goes, what are you fucking talking about? And, you know, he just annoyingly just gets up off the couch and I'm just still standing there staring at the figure like I don't want to move. And so then as he's walking into the kitchen, he turns the light on. The minute he turns the light on, disappears. Oh, he my goes, God. He goes, so he didn't even see it? No. He goes, what are you talking Aww. about? And I was like, she was right there. And he goes, no, she wasn't. And I was like, dad, she was. Why do you think I'm standing in the middle of the kitchen and not in the bathroom? So he's like, whatever. And so we walk into her room and I'm like, I'm telling you. She was standing here. We go in her bedroom. It took us like three minutes to wake her up. She was that asleep. Oh, And wow. he goes, were you just in the kitchen? She goes, I was fucking sleeping. Why'd you wake me up? <laughs> you know, so she's all, all mad. And I'm like, all right, this is fucked up. Keeping all the lights on while I pee and then running back upstairs because this is fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Um, How so old were you? That's the thing. I wasn't even a little kid. I was like 15. Oh, my goodness. You know, Ooh. so it was like that age where you're like, oh. Uh, I can't like be making this shit up like exactly. <laughs> you know exactly. it was just weird so same house and this is like before we even moved in so like earlier that year I guess because we'd lived there like five or six years I guess um so I don't know maybe it was the year before I can't remember exactly but it was before we moved in my cousin lived there with her two young kids and for some reason, uh, I went over there to babysit the little kid. He was just an infant. He was in the crib upstairs or whatever. And my mom and dad went with my cousin somewhere. So they're like, hey, you can stay here and babysit him. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. whatever. He's already asleep. It's like 930, whatever. It's fine. So it's a huge house, like I mentioned before, and it's square. So like it's mm-hmm. just downstairs, upstairs, you know, right there. <laughs> um, not too many places to go or hide. And... I was downstairs with the little baby monitor, which, you know, you can get interference through those, you know, if other. I don't like those things. They're creepy. But. Yeah. Especially after that one movie. Ooh, I don't remember one that you know. What one I about. know which one you're talking about, though. Um, OK, so I was watching him, you know, like 20, 25 minutes probably passed by. Nothing. Nothing's going on. He's dead asleep. And then all of a sudden I hear something on the monitor I can't make out what it was and then all of us like it sounded like a voice but then all of a sudden a screaming baby so I freak out and I'm like oh my god he must have fallen out of the crib or something but he was so young I didn't think he could stand up and crawl out yeah so I run upstairs mind you I'm by myself I'm like 15 by myself run upstairs 
and he's asleep. He's just snoozing, just laying there mm. snoozing. And I'm like, no fucking way. I'm like, what is going on? I'm like looking at the baby monitor in my hand, no noise coming out of it at all. I'm like, that was so weird. So I go back downstairs. I'm like, oh, it's probably interference, whatever. So I even go out front to like look at the neighbor's house to see if anybody's home. Cause like they were old people, but like if they had like yeah. a radio on or something, I was thinking maybe that nobody's home. I knew they weren't home. Like they <laughs> were gone for the entire week. So I'm like, this is fucking weird. So I go back inside and I'm just sitting there. And the more I thought about it, the more freaked out I got. And I'm like, this is so weird. He starts crying again. Go up there, not crying. So I call mom and dad. I go out front, like leave the baby inside. I go out front and I call my dad. And I'm like, you need to get home now. And he's like, oh my what is goodness. wrong with you? I'm right down the road. And I said, no, you need to get home now. I'm never watching her kid again. <laughs> and he's like, this why? This kid is yeah. possessed. Seriously, exactly. So then they get home. Even my cousin comes home and I tell her what happened. And just the look on her face, she was just like, that didn't happen. She, I was like, she oh, had to I have. They literally moved out like two months later and we moved in. Oh, I thought that face. I thought you were going to say she heard it. I think she before. did. She like, didn't want to tell me. She didn't want to say anything. Yeah. She probably felt crazy. Yeah. Because yeah. that's an adult, you know. Oh, my goodness. But that then she tough. moves out two months later. Like, come on. <laughs> But then you guys moved in? Yeah. <laughs> and then I saw mom in the kitchen, you know? Some weird shit. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd be like, Pete. Yep. <laughs> Maybe the baby was possessed. Maybe he was fucking with you. Maybe. I don't talk to him. <laughs> I don't even know how old he, he is now. He you that bad, huh? You're like, motherfucker, stay away. <laughs> right? I hex you. <laughs> You're going to find out on 23 and Me that he's like some murderer. No. Oh, I'm just kidding. Your cousin's not. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice oh that's funny though my next story is about a crying baby oh shit. or not no it's about a baby but he's not crying but it's about a baby creepy. Isn't that weird? creepy we did not plan this either like we didn't no. know each other's stories at all at all um i didn't tell you even what it was going to be about you didn't even know if i was into arkansas or california yeah um this story um, you know, I try and do a Patreon mystery, Arkansas Mysteries episode. I'm just such a busy person that I have only done two. But um, this story, I actually had a listener uh, tell me about it and ask me to cover it. And um, I don't think there's really enough. I mean, if I dug, maybe I could, but I don't think there's enough to cover it as a, a story or a case. But um, I didn't know about it and told me. It's called Mama Lou's Bridge or um, Wolf Bayou Bridge. That's like the real name, but they call it Mama Lou's Bridge. And it's known as a crybaby bridge. Have you heard of that before? No. I'm, I've never heard of it, but it, the internet said that that's a thing. So it must be. Oh, the internet never lies. <laughs> so the old bridge is the one that the story um, took place on. And it's been replaced since 2005 uh, with it. Now it's concrete. I don't know if that it still happens because, you know, like I said, I didn't really look into it. But um, the old bridge is the one that this happened, supposedly happened on. So a woman was uh, driving in her car with her newborn baby and she drove off the bridge and they both died. I don't know if she, like some stories say she did it on purpose. Like she like killed the baby herself and the baby. Um, some stories say she was escaping from an asylum, but like, why would she have a baby? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, me, I'm all like, it's got to make sense. But anyway, so. <laughs> Where are the facts? What's the timeline? Yeah, Tell me. Exactly. <laughs> 
So um, if you go to the bridge, and I don't know, like I said, I don't know if it still happens, but I think it does. But if you go to the bridge and you stand in the middle of the bridge, and I'm like demonstrating to you, (laughs) and you yell, Mama Lou, I've got your baby, three times. Oh, like Bloody Mary. Mm -hmm. Yes. Three times. It's always three times. Candyman. Or Beetlejuice. Um, supposedly there's, there's different stories. Again, supposedly you will either have car trouble or you will see a floating woman in white near the bridge, or you'll see or hear splashing in the water or car crashing. Oh They're my all different. God. So it makes, makes me wonder if people really, you know, but anyways, that's the, you know, what, what will happen if you yell, Mama Lou, I've got your baby three times. Um, EVPs have been captured by paranormal investigations at investigators at the bridge. I didn't know what an EVP was. I had to, <laughs> I had to ask, uh, I don't, I, I don't watch a lot of ghost hunting and stuff. Um, <laughs> but my, my oldest daughter does like, she's real big into it. Uh, real big. Like I had to take her to places when she came here <laughs> yeah. and, um, she told me it was, I guess the noise that yeah. they capture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very cool. I don't know if it's tr- true or not. I haven't made my way to visit. I might try. So that was my haunted Arkansas. Creepy. All right. So I guess I I got the last story here. Um, it's actually an experience that my dad had. So some of the like details I might mess up a little bit. I'm gonna give you guys like the bland version of it. Um, I'll have to have dad on the podcast again to tell it but so in a nutshell this is what happened to him and he still freaks out about it to this day like he still gets emotional when he talks about it because of how it affected him um when he was a teenager I want to say he was like 15 or 16 right around that age maybe even 17 again details not sure (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but he had a best friend named Annette and they did everything together and one night he was at his friend's house or whatever his mom calls him and says hey you need to get home like dinner time or whatever so he stays out a little bit longer because that's just who he was he just did his own thing (laughs) um but on his way home and it's so crazy because the place I'm about to tell you about is a place that was not even half a mile from that house that we lived in because this is Mm -hmm. the town that my dad grew up in you know and Mm -hmm. I would pass this place every single day but he was riding his bike you know, his bike did not get stolen, like in our story from nature versus narcissism. But he was riding his bike home and it was already getting dark. So like, you know, the streetlights were on and that's mm-hmm. about all you could see unless you came up to a store or whatever. But everything else was pitch black. He would always get freaked out by this building. And I cannot remember if it had originally been like a funeral home or what it was, but it was like a gorgeous building. Now, today, it's an art museum. Um, Mm. type place but it's it's very architecturally beautiful but also kind of creepy at night (laughs) Um, so he hated riding his bike by it he hated being on that side of the street at night because it was just creepy Mm -hmm. so he would like zoom past it as fast as he could that (laughs) night something made him stop in front of it he what dead stopped in front of it at nighttime got off of his bike and looked up to the top window that was in the center which is already creepy enough. It reminds Mm -hmm. you of like Amityville. Um, And he saw her. He saw his best friend standing in the window and he freaked out and he's like, why the fuck is she standing in there? Like, how did she get in there? This doesn't make sense. Like, it's a closed building. It's nighttime. Like, why would she be over here? Um, 
and he could describe the outfit she was wearing. So he like freaked out and he's like, this is so weird. He like gets on his bike and he rushes home, walks in the door and his mom and his sister are both crying. And he's like... I had like, a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah. No fucking way. Yeah. They were crying and um, he's like, no. And they were like, honey, we got to tell you something. And he's like, no, please tell me it's not in that. And they're like, how do you know? He was like, oh no, no, no. And then they explained it to him. Like, I guess she had gotten in a car accident. Oh, you accident. gave me chills. I, me too, dude. Oh. <laughs> he had, she had gotten in a car accident earlier that evening. And when they described what she was wearing, he freaked out because that's exactly what he saw in that window. And that was his best friend. And he's like, that is not fucking right. Like, this freaking me out like I just saw her and then mm-hmm. his mom was like no no honey you did not just see her he's like no I did I saw her I know what she was wearing in that car accident and he explained the outfit and it was the same outfit oh my goodness tell I me that's like, not creepy I would never drive by that place ever again. dude we like had to ever. drive by it every day we lived there <laughs> it's so wicked right Ooh, you gave me chills on that one. and that I don't again I don't remember all the details like no but that's, but that's to... the gist of what had happened and I I'm like, dude, that was like his best friend. That's freaky. So freaky. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. So needless to say, my dad and I both believe in ghosts. Yep. I can, you know, you know, (laughs) Jason doesn't believe us. That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So creepy time. Yeah. So there you go, Courtney. Hope your listeners like, hope they get chills. (laughs) Yes, they will for that one. Yeah. (laughs) Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween! So, listeners, are you spooked yet? As the fire goes out and the sun slowly rises on this All Hallows Eve, I thank you for joining us around the fire, this malefic coven, to end for this year. We will return next year and crack open the book 